Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 394 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. So excited to have Hannah Brencher as my guest today. Could you imagine giving a TED Talk at the age of 24? Yeah, that's what she did. Her first talk ever. So we're going to talk about that, millennials, uh, addiction to platform, and so much more. This episode is brought to you by Glue Connect. You can head on over to glueconnect.church forward slash carry to learn how your church can reach more people in your city and get free access to a course I built called Click to Connect. And by Dwell App, get the Dwell Audio Bible app today by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry. You'll get 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription. Well, I met Hannah in Atlanta a couple of years ago. I was doing an event for young leaders. And uh, what Google Analytics tells me is most of you are just in that category. Uh, I think it's 25 to 35-year-olds who comprise the bulk of this audience, followed by 35 to 45-year-olds. And, uh, well, I just have a heart for young leaders. I remember being one, and I'll tell you, could you imagine, like, giving your first ever public talk at the age of 24 at TED in New York City? Not like TEDx, but like TED with Chris Anderson sitting in the front row. Uh, Yeah, well, fast forward a few years, and that kind of launched Hannah's life into a whole new direction. She reflects on what she's learned as a communicator. We have a great breakdown of the TED methodology, millennials, the addiction to platform that her generation and every generation has, and um, what her generation wants in digital and physical interaction. She's the author of a brand new book called Fighting Forward. She's a blogger, TED speaker, entrepreneur. She founded The World Needs More Love Letters. We dive into that conversation. It's a global community designed uh, to send letters to those who need encouragement She's named as one of the White House's women working to do good and a spokesperson for the United States Postal Service. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Oprah, Glamour, USA Today, Chicago Tribune, and more. And she's here on the podcast today. For those of you who are new, thank you so much for uh, finding us. We hope you'll subscribe. If you love it, share it with some people. Uh, Give Hannah a shout out. We've got show notes for you too. You can find it at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 394. And we have transcripts there if you want to go a little bit deeper. So if you're like a lot of pastors, your outreach strategy looks nothing like it did a year ago. And maybe you're trying to figure out how to put it together. And so you're saying, okay, how do we get a marketing department? Can't really afford one, but we need like Google ads, direct door. Uh, what, What do we need? Maybe some Facebook ads. Well, if you're like most churches, even if you're going there, you're probably not happy with the results you're getting. And you're thinking, I need to have a big budget. I got to hire staff. They're out of reach. Digital is your number one outreach channel, but how can you get the right message to the right people? Well, that's where Glue Connect comes in. It was created just for this need, and uh, here's how it works. Glue runs professional felt needs-based ads on Facebook, Instagram, and other digital channels. They pool funds from donors and churches to run cooperative campaigns in your city, offsetting your advertising costs. In December alone of 2020, over 100 ads ran promoting in-person and online services in the Dallas-Fort Worth area alone, delivering 2.5 million impressions with over 100 websites. So in just a month, 19,000 people in South Florida also clicked on their ads to check out church profiles, resulting in more than 300 new connections to churches in the area. And what that means is more people checking out your church. This should be in your outreach toolbox. And if you want to meet more people 
Every month, we got a cool thing. Thanks to kingdom-minded donors in selected U.S. cities, you can now get Glue Connect free for the first year, a 1700 value. It's rolling out city by city. You will also get a course I created inside Glue Connect by going to glueconnect.church forward slash carry. And when you sign up, my Click to Connect course is included in that. It's a four-part course for church leaders and over $250 value. So sign up and see if it's available in your city. Watch for new connections in your church today by going to glueconnect.church forward slash carry. And podcast is brought to you by the Dwell app. Our partners at the Dwell app really want to help you get into God's word, but also find some calm in the midst of it. I mean, as this whole situation continues and things are full of turmoil, uh, I don't know about you, but like mental rest is harder to find. So the Dwell app can help with that. It can help you get in the word, stay in the word. They have loads of inspiring voices, Bible translations, and original background music. So Some of the features of the Dwell app include listening plans, playlists, Dwell mode. You can use Dwell mode to meditate, memorize, and pray while listening to scripture. And a brand new sleep timer so you don't drain your phone battery. All that practical stuff too. So you can get the Dwell app today by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry. You will get 20% off an annual plan or lifetime subscription just by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry. So going to jump into my conversation with Hannah Brencher in just a moment. Uh, at the very end of this podcast in the what I'm thinking about segment, I'm going to talk about um, talks because we talk about TED Talks. I'm going to give you a quick way to learn how to deliver a talk without using notes. So that'll come up at the end of the episode. But without further ado, my conversation with Hannah Brencher. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. It's uh, great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, we met um, when the world before it changed and went upside down at a real event live and in person in Atlanta, which is funny because it was a bit of a precursor because we were live and there was a small studio audience, but it went out mostly to an online audience, which somehow feels like the future. So true. I didn't even think of that. No, I just thought now. of it right now. Like just right now, I'm like, oh yeah, that was the future, except it was in 2019. It's kind of prophetic. <laughs> <laughs> but it was. Wasn't there like 20 of us in the audience and thousands of people watching online? Yep. It was a really small, like in, in-person in audience. And then, and it felt like, I don't know if you felt this, but it's a little bit like awkward when it's such a small group and you know that it's live at the same time. Like, so it's like, you didn't really, you're like, who am I engaging with? Because <laughs> basically the audience was those of us who were speaking at the event and like, a handful of invited guests, right? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great people. A lot of whom I still keep in contact with via social today, but young adults and yeah. Yeah. Who knew that that was a precursor of the future? But anyway, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> speaking life of live changed. events, um, Ted, <laughs> very, Ted, so yeah. you, your Ted talk has 3 million views, which is astounding. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and you were 24 when you gave it, which is even more outstanding. Really. Thank you. What was it? it? Was... Um, like, take us up to how you got that TED event. And then I really want to talk about the public speak, uh, speaking phenomenon. There I am. I can't even say public speaking. But um, the whole idea of like what TED taught you about communication, mm. even at such a young age. Yeah. So I didn't. I had watched a handful of TED Talks and I had done no speaking whatsoever. Um, So came right out the gate with TED. But I remember a friend said to me, she was like, you have such a great story. Like you should share it. Like you should do a TEDx. So I went onto their website. 
There weren't any TEDx's like happening locally where I was for that time frame. And I noticed that like the front homepage banner had a global talent search that they were doing. They've only ever done this twice. Oh. Um, and it was, they were looking for untold stories. And so I was like, I don't know. I think my story's untold. I'm not really sure. But like I got well, on my you'd iPhone. you never spoken in public before, probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had never done anything. And I don't even, I don't like to be on stage. I have horrendous stage fright. Um, wow. And so it's just ironic. The whole thing is ironic, but I recorded it on my iPhone. I told them a little bit of my story. I sent it into them. And two months later, I got an email that was like, you are a finalist for the United States. You need to come to New York City on this particular date to deliver your audition. And so the first day you show up and you deliver your talk in front of all the people that are working in the TED offices, like you're in the TED offices and they're critiquing you. So, <laughs> And you've never spoken in public before. <laughs> and I was like, fumbling all over my words. I was so nervous and they had me rewrite half of the talk. I only had about 12 hours to do it, but um, I had to rewrite the whole entire thing. And then the next night was the actual live audition in front of about 300 past TED speakers who all had to rate us. Like, oh, so. Oh my gosh, this is your debut at 24. Yep. That's hard enough at 42, but at 24, man. Oh, and I think everybody probably thought like, oh gosh, this is going to be a train wreck because like my my one practice round did not go well. And I got up there, this strange, weird piece met me. I delivered the talk because mine was completely memorized. There was like mm -hmm. a cadence and a rhythm to it. And I remember I got off the stage and everybody was crying and I was crying. Um, but yeah, the talk that's online on TED.com, that's like my audition. That was never supposed to see the light of day. And they liked it so much that they put it online. And no one ever contacted me to tell me like, hey, your life is about to flip upside down. So like, I'm just getting random phone calls from my friends being like, Hannah, you're on TED.com. Like you are TED Talk of the day. And I just... I thought it was a joke, but the content manager was like, no, it's not a joke. And from that point forward, I started speaking all over the place with no speaking experience at all. That's insane. So that, okay, because I watched the TED Talk. It's super short. It's what, what is it? Yep, four minutes. Four, I was going to say five minutes. So it's four minutes. And that was your rehearsal. That was my rehearsal, yeah. Get out. Okay. Wow. Because, okay, so let's talk about the rewriting process and what you've learned. So that was in 2012. Did I get the date right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's like nine years ago, almost now, by the time this hits oh. the air, which is crazy. So you've had a couple of uh, laps around the sun since then. But I could tell, like, even in the in the rehearsal, it was a classic TED intro. You didn't like, oh, it's such an honor to be here. It was just, you just started, right? Started. They what? made me do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What that did they the what rewrite. did they teach you when and I imagine in those days, like was Chris Anderson there? Like uh He was sitting, yep, front row. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. So you got Chris Anderson, the founder of Ted, like critiquing you. Critiquing me. And he was the one that kind of I think he could tell that I was really, really nervous. Um yeah. and that I mean, I'm I'm surrounded by like scientists and botanists and Nobel Prize winning, you know, and I'm just this girl with a mail crate. And 
he started talking to me and kind of maybe getting to the root of like, okay, like let's push past some of like this prose and like, let's just have a conversation here. And I said something about my mother, which ends up being the introduction to the talk. But he was like that right there. I want you to start with your mom. I want you to tell us about your mom. I want you to go in right there. And it changed the whole direction of the talk. But like, they are very intense there in a great way because they call you up to excellence. But it's also like, yeah, rewrite half of it and come back tomorrow and be ready to go. And like you had um, they actually had said in the audition process, tell us if you need to do this talk in four minutes, five minutes or six minutes. The lower you say, like the lower the amount of time you say you need, there's a better chance it will pick you. So I said four minutes and they were like, great, come on in. Um, and so they were very strict on time standards. I don't think there's ever been a talk that's been more stressful than that one in all the talks I've given since. Okay. So what have you learned? Uh, Cause there are books and like whole seminars on how yeah. Ted structures talks and the whole deal, mm-hmm. but you conveyed an awful lot. Like it was a powerful story and very memorable in four minutes. And you got thousands of communicators listening to this episode, okay? Yeah. And most of us are like, I'm not even like introed four minutes into it. What are some of the principles of TED Talks that you learned then and perhaps then that you carry through to today? I think one of the biggest things that I learned was that like, TED was not interested in me being relatable. That was not hmm. the thing. I did not need to try to say something that was going to strike a chord with the person in the audience. I needed to get out there and I needed to share my story and trust that the story itself was going to hit people how it needed to hit people. And what's really interesting is I um, I freelance, right, for a company known as Meditative Story. I don't know if you've ever listened to their podcast. I have not, no. The guy that um, asked me to come on board and write some stories with them, he remembered me from his TED days of working at TED. So it was, they do the same thing in this process of like, you don't have to worry, like trying to find those points of relatability, share your story and make it your own and make it unique. And just trust that like the audience is going to track with you and they're going to feel their own emotions, whatever that roller coaster is supposed to look like. Um, I think they also taught me too, though, that you don't need to fill it up with a lot of words. It's a very short talk, but it gets the point across. And like, I think that that conciseness and not wasting people's time and getting right to the heart of what needs to be said, I've carried that with me ever since. Really? So what would a typical introduction, because you are a public speaker, and we'll talk about the future of public speaking maybe at some point, right, with COVID changing everything. Um, But like, what would a typical introduction for you now, uh, nine years later, look like when you're giving a a public talk? It would still look the same. Start with a story. And um, if it makes you nervous to get up there and be like, hi, I'm so-and-so. And for me, I don't even like to get into credentials. I like to start where I'm comfortable. And that's with storytelling. That's the thing I've always been comfortable with. Um, Mm. And something I learned in the back end of it, because Ted did have us write the talk, send it in. They sent back comments before we even ever saw them in person. That's something that I've carried with me ever since. Every one of my talks is written out completely before I ever deliver it. Mm. 
And then, and then you memorize it or you bullet point it or how, how do you handle that? Yep. I sometimes, a lot of times I don't have to memorize it. Thank God I've had to deliver that TED talk over again in some certain audiences. And that's just, it's stressful all over again, (laughs) but I do speak the stories out loud. I become familiar with them. I find the humor in them and I, in a way, memorize those stories. Like I could tell you like, okay, I know that this story takes six minutes to tell. I know that that story takes seven minutes to tell. And so there is that repetition to like learning a story of yours in and out. But for me, it all starts with writing. So Hannah, I don't want to put you on the spot, but yeah, because it was nine years ago, but you've given it since then. You've you've become famous for it. Can you just give us the first 30 seconds of that talk? Like just so we can illustrate it just for people or a sample of how you would start a talk today. Because you're right, so many, as a public speaker, so often, and I, I don't want to put you on the spot, we can edit this out if it doesn't work out, but so often as a speaker, you know, I'll get up there, it's like, oh, it's so good to be in Seattle and I haven't been to Seattle and last time I was, you know, and I know that's not a good technique, but I do it anyway. So how do you start? Well, and I do think there have been talks where I have done just that because there is a relatability factor to that, yeah, you know? Okay. So it's like, if I'm going somewhere and, um, where was I? In, I think it's, it was Wisconsin. That's where all the cheese is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah and so I, I had my Uber is. driver take me to like the cheese castle and all of that. And like, if a story comes out of that, I will always share that. But like, um... Gosh, can I remember the beginning of the oh, talk? I'm not, I don't want to put I you on the spot. I was if one you of the asked only me kids to in college. Like, go ahead. I'm going to do what I can, okay? Okay, do what you can. This is fun. I was one of the only kids in college who had a reason to go to the mailbox at the end of the day. And that's mainly because my mother has never believed in Facebook, in texting, in email in general. And so while all the other kids were BBMing their parents, I was literally waiting by the mailbox to get some sort of news from home, which was a little frustrating when grandma was in the hospital. But still, I was just waiting on some unkempt cursive from my mother. I did it. Oh, you did it. That's brilliant. (laughs) And I watched the talk. That sounds exactly like your talk. Good for you. Good for you. (laughs) you. Congratulations. (laughs) So what what is it? And that's what I wanted people to hear. Like you just started. And I feel like like dissect that from a public speaking standpoint. Why is that an effective introduction? Because you are the one that knows your stories the best. Mm. And because people relate to stories. I've never gone wrong as long as I was sharing a story from my heart. And I remember like I did that talk and then it was like, colleges were asking me to come and speak all over the place. And I'm sure, you know, college students, they're hard to get. They're not polite. They're like, you're boring. Right. (laughs) And if like it's extra credit or something and they have to be there, it's even worse. Um, And so I, for my own self, I found like when I got up there and I tried to make some weird, awkward introduction to make myself feel better. It only made me feel more nervous as when I just got up there and I immediately began and they were just kind of thrust into it with me. One of the things that was really interesting was 
Um, a few years ago, I spoke with um, Christine Kane's Propel, mm-hmm. and they did the same thing. They said, you have 20 minutes. We want the talk completely written out. Um, no surprises, nothing. And I sent them the talk, and I included an introduction that talked about how nervous I was about this because I used to go off of that crutch that if I could just tell people that I was nervous, then it was okay if I messed up, right? They were with me. And I remember her coming back and she didn't have any feedback except that she wanted me to get rid of that part, that she did not want me to walk on stage and lead with my insecurity, but trust that it was going to be enough to leave that out. And that has stuck with me ever since of like, wow, like so often I just want to lead with an insecurity because I'm afraid maybe I don't add up. That'll preach. Okay, right there. (laughs) Worth the price of admission. Do not lead with your insecurity. I think because do you I hear me? That's what we do. Like I have a lisp. There is no reason I should public speak, but I I'm here. No, you're right. You know, a lot of that is you want to get the crowd to like you. You want to crack a few jokes. You want to you know find some common bond. What is that? If you really unpack it in free counseling, that's probably insecurity. Insecurity, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's like, okay, well, I'm here to share my story anyway. And I think sometimes. You can definitely get exasperated with yourself because you've shared the story so many times, but you have to remember that like this audience is a new audience and they've never heard it before. And I just, I don't know. I have to see the power in those stories that I'm bringing to share. No, you know, and you think about it, 3 million views on your Ted talk, which also means that something like 7 billion people haven't seen the Ted talk, right? Because you think, oh my gosh, everybody knows this. Like that was the most watched talk I've ever done or whatever. The reality is most people haven't. So that's good to know. Yeah. Um, Anything else you learned from Chris Anderson or the folks at TED that that you think is worth sharing with leaders? Because you do have a lot of people who, who communicate listening to the show. Gosh, I just think, I mean, I... I've stayed in touch with them throughout the years and I just... That company, it's like there's such a standard of excellence that I look up to. And I think like what an honor that that was the first thing I was ever exposed to because it kept me believing like no matter where you are, if you are in a room full of past TED speakers or if you are, um, you know, in a, a basement of a college and there's six people, you still show up and deliver that talk to like the best of your ability as if there was like a packed stadium of people, right? Like if you can communicate something powerful to just one person that might change their whole entire life. And, and that's enough. Cause I think as speakers, like sometimes when you show up and there's not as many people as you thought there was going to be, like you immediately start to think, okay, is it worth it that I'm here? Like, why am I even here? I've had those thoughts before. Mm -hmm. And then there's always someone that comes out of the woodworks and is like, hey, I just wanted to let you know, like tell you this story. And you're like blown away because you're like, I came here for you. Like I came to Kansas City for you specifically. And so don't ever belittle those moments where you feel like there should be more, but it's a small group because like that small group matters. Just one person matters. Yeah, that is a good word. And I also uh, think having started with a very tiny audience years ago, 
Uh, if you're not faithful with the five people you got, you're probably not going to be faithful with the 5,000 you might have one day or 500 or 50 or Amen. whatever. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so take us through what led up to the TED Talk, because it's not just a story you tell on stage. It was a period of your life that somehow involved letters. Can, can you explain that for us? Yeah. So I graduated from college and I moved to New York City for what I thought was going to be a dream job. Um, I'm very passionate about human rights. So while other people grew up with like sync posters on their walls, I had cutouts from the UN catalog on my walls. Like <laughs> That was me. Um, and so I landed this job being a liaison for an NGO at the United Nations out of college, which I don't know why they gave that to a college graduate, but hey, I'm forever grateful. And I found myself very quickly struggling with a lot of like loneliness that ended up morphing into a diagnosis for depression. I didn't yeah. know it at the time because 10 years ago, we didn't talk about depression as much as we do right now. And also because like my family didn't talk about it. I didn't know that it was like in my family and that it wasn't actually that surprising if I was dealing with depression. And so as a way to cope with my sadness, I started to write letters to strangers I would see in New York City and I would rip out the letters and I'd fold them up and I would leave them unsigned all over the city just in the hopes that somebody would find one and like feel like it wasn't an accident that they were seen on that day. And I had this little baby blog at the time. I love blogging. And I think it was you that was, you were so passionate about blogging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have done a lot of blogging. Yeah. Yeah. But like you talked about it in the speaking engagement, just about like the importance of that. And it gave me a renewed fire to be like, I'm going back to that blog. Mm. And like, at that time, there was maybe like 100 readers of mine from like college and my mom. And I blogged about the fact that I was writing these letters. And I said, if you need a letter for whatever reason, I'll write to you. And I thought I'd get a few responses, but I ended up writing over 400 letters to strangers over the next nine months. Wow. And <laughs> it sounds great. It was not that fun, but I knew especially this was the height of the labeling of millennials and the labels were never favorable for us. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, if I want to be anything in this lifetime, I want to be consistent. I want to be somebody who follows through on a promise because no one believes that my generation has that in us. And so I wrote all of those letters as a way of saying, I'm going to finish what I started. But at the end of that, everybody was like, oh, no, it's not over. Like, you need to you need to give this to other people. And so I built a love letter writing organization. I had no idea what I was doing because it had never existed before. But I just knew that, like, these letters had given me something at a time where I was really lonely and I wanted to give that to other people. And so that's the organization that I run today that is like forever been my passion project. Um, and people go online, they nominate friends and family going through something tough. We put up stories every month and people around the world handwrite a letter and mail it in. And those people are blessed with bundles of 300 to 600 to 1200 letters showing up on a day where they think they're not going to be seen. Wow. And those are like handwritten letters on All paper. All handwritten. Yes. Yep. I'd, I'd love to drill down on that a little bit. It's a really inspiring story. So one of the stories yeah. is 
you overcame your loneliness by reaching out to other lonely people. There's yeah. something there. But um, the interplay, because this is a very live issue now in 2021, as, as this goes live, between analog and digital, right? So we spent the last year pretty much digital cocoon, and people are saying people want live relationship and everything. And yet your generation was mm -hmm. really, you would be almost at the age where you're the first digital native, right? Like if you think about yeah. it, you probably got your cell phone when you were in middle school-ish. Yep. Or young high school. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And would have been among the first because for people older, older than you, it probably would have been high school or, you know, for me, it happened in adulthood because <laughs> there were no phones that you could have when I was your age, right? <laughs> so, so there was all that. But what is the interplay in your mind for your generation or those coming behind you between the digital and the analog? Gosh, I wish that there was more of the analog. And I'm not saying that because I think we need to go back to a time that is not as efficient as what we have right here. Technology mm. is a huge gift. Like I think um, what I do today, it would not exist without social media. And yeah. so I always wanted to harness that power in order to bring people back to a, a more present moment. Um, because the thing is my generation, like, we struggle with being present. Hmm. Um, we, we're always on our phones. We're always distracted. We wonder why we're so anxious and depressed is because we grew up with these phones being such an essential part of our, I don't want to say DNA, but in a lot of ways, like it, it became not just like call mom on this phone, but like this is where you filter all your thoughts and your feelings. And this is how the world rates you. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was in college right before I moved to New York City, and I wanted to do my undergraduate research on the negative effects of social media. But it was 2009, and there was no research out there on it. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, like, this is powerful, but like, this is going to be a mess in a few years. I just felt it in you my saw spirit. That. That's funny. I, saw I remember it, 2009, I did not see it. You knew it. Wow. And I, I remember the only person that there was only one professor that had written a book and I interviewed him and it was called The Dumbest Generation. <laughs> it was on the negative impacts of technology, but there was nothing out there. And I remember people saying to me, oh, that's like wet paint. We're not going to know for 10 or 15 or 20 years the negative impacts of what social media is going to do for a generation growing up with it. Well, we're 10 years in, right? Mm -hmm. And um, more love letters was built on this premise that it's not about letters. It's not about stationary or stamps. It's about presence. It's about real connection. It's about you being willing to put your phone down and think about somebody for a few minutes not even a lot of time, but like to focus in on that task and that person because they are worthy to be seen in that way. And I, I just have always wanted people to know that because like, I'm not even like, it's so funny to be like this postal service maven when I don't even really care so much about letter writing so much as I care of like, you know, going back to my mom, my mom wrote me letters and she tucked them all over for me to find. And there's going to be a day one day where my mom isn't here anymore and I'm going to have her letters. 
And I write letters now for my eight-month-old daughter, not because I think it's the efficient way of communication, but because I want her to have something to hold of me. And I think my generation doesn't have that. We don't get that. And we also don't take enough time to even build that if we wanted to. It's it's a really interesting discussion here because, yeah, when I look at your company, I look at you're a speaker, you're uh, an author, you know, you've written a book, but you're also, yeah. you run a virtual company, right? Do you have a yeah. headquarters mm-hmm. or do you run it out of your house like a lot of us do? Yep, run it out of my house. That's right. You, you appear to be in a spare room, right? That you've <laughs> outfitted to your office. office. That has, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's this weird hybrid, right? Because I talk to a lot of leaders, like when it comes back to a church service or that kind of thing, and they're like, no, everyone wants in person. And they make the argument that your generation doesn't want digital, that they only want in person. Mm. And yet I wonder, there is an in person for sure, but you're also, you're never not going to be technological. Do you want to speak into that? And, And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just, I'm trying to get my own head around it, Hannah. Yeah, I think it's something we're all trying to figure out, right? Yeah, like yeah, what, yeah. what this is, because I do think, especially like in these times right now, like everybody is craving in person. Mm. But at the same time, I think it's so much easier to not show up at all. And that like, I've seen my generation, I've worked in college ministry, and they come the first time and they come the second time. And then they don't want to show up anymore, right? Because it's not shiny and it's not new anymore. And so I think that there is this need for um, for us to have this value of consistency of like, okay, yeah, we go there every Sunday. Okay, yeah, I go to the gym every day. This isn't like a 30-day program or a six-week program, but like our culture has almost been packaged and and given to us in that way of like, oh, like you want to study your Bible. Here's a 21 day program. But like, what about day 22? You know? (laughs) And so I've definitely found within our company, because at the time that I was launching it, I was working at a global nonprofit on their communications team. And we had a term called slacktivism, where millennials just wanted everything to be very easy. Like Mm. they just want to click a button and believe that they're doing good in the world. And I remember being so enraged by this because I was like, I don't think that that's true about us, you know? Um, And so I remember being so astounded and still so astounded that in order to participate in our mission, you have to go and get stamps from the post office. You have to write letters. You need stationery. And that never deters anybody from getting involved. They're actually really excited to do something apart from the screen. And so I think that there's kind of like, we're in like this middle chasm of like, we do want in-person things and we're tired and we're run down by these devices. But at the same time, our whole lives run from these devices. And we've also kind of in a weird way, like been taught that this is, this is how you're significant in the world is if you're Mm. showing up on these platforms, I don't necessarily, I don't believe that but I know that there are so many people that will engage me in conversations and immediately be like, oh, you have this many followers on Instagram or you have a, a blue check on Twitter. And that is the thing that they're aspiring towards. No, it's it's the funniest thing. I mean, we have family friends and I've known these kids. They're now teenagers, but I've known them since they were born because they've been really yeah. good friends with, um, you know, we're really good friends with their parents. 
And I have a blue check mark on Instagram. And all of a sudden, overnight, I went to becoming a celebrity. And it's like, <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've actually been at your house like when you guys were in kindergarten. Like you've known me this whole time. I haven't changed at all. Yeah. But yeah. it is it is a category in their mind that when it gets clicked, it's like, I don't know, that it, it is it is really weird. What would you say to those who are trying to bridge this world, this, I call it the slipstream between analog and digital. Like, you know, here we are having this conversation, but yeah. I'm going to finish this up and then I'll go see my wife who's upstairs and we'll cook dinner in real life in the kitchen and, mm-hmm. you know, all that thing. But then I'm going to look at my phone and there's a text from a buddy in Vancouver or Atlanta and I respond to him. You know, I wonder if we we try to make a binary too much where, you know, our mm. church is going to be all online or our company is going to be all online or it's going to be all takeout or it's going to be all in person because that's what people want. Any thoughts on 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 that moving into the future? I don't even I know think, that that's a good question. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I Hopefully I can answer what I at least have like learned in my own life is that like you have to find the balance in everything, right? Like what you just explained there, like that was a balance of like, yes, Mm -hmm. I'm going to use the tools that I've been given, but also I, I live a very real life. Um, and I would encourage people, especially like young people of like, Hey, it's not all happening on the screen, but like, also like it is necessary to do this work. If like your work like requires this of you. Mm. Right. And so having that balance of like, okay, well, like I have like a, an eight month old daughter downstairs and it's like, she's going to know if I can't pay attention to her and I have to be on my screen all the time, like she's going to pick up on that. And Mm -hmm. so it's like, we have this first generation coming up that is like they've seen their parents with their phones and they've seen the importance of phones because of that. And so I think for me, it comes down to like in personal life, having those boundaries, knowing when you're turned on, knowing when you're shut off and then like living by those boundaries. But I think for businesses and communicators, like every audience is different. And so you kind of have to gauge off of what it is that they want. Like there are some places where it's like, yeah, we want to go and we want to sit in that restaurant in person. Like, cause that is the experience they've crafted an experience. And a lot of church services are like that as well. And so like, I think, I don't know if that answers your question at all. Yeah, but. it does. And 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 how, let me let me ask it in a slightly different way, and then we can move on because there's a lot I want to cover today. But how do we show up for you? Like when you're saying, "I will get this on my phone," and mm-hmm. you can pick church, you can pick a business, like whatever you want. Like I'm I'm happy to order Starbucks on my phone, and and just do the mobile pickup, or I'll get Uber Eats to drop off dinner tonight. That's fine. I don't need a yeah a connection with you, or I'm happy to watch the message online, but where do you, where do you, and I'm going to make this idiosyncratic to you. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to show up in real, per, in real life? Like, where do you like, no, this is what I want a connection with personally rather than digitally. I mean, in a pre COVID world, it yeah, was. Let's assume no COVID and we don't have to wear masks. So the vaccine is on its way and blah, 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 blah. But let's, let's assume moving forward. Yeah. I think that you, I would always opt for the in-person experience over the online experience. If I have that ability, because, um, 
I think about like my people and my friends, like the girlfriends that we all watch The Bachelorette together on Monday nights. And it's like, well, we've tried to do that over Zoom and it doesn't really work, you know? And so it's like, I want to show up for them. I want them to know that like if one of them is going through a crisis, I'm going to show up at your front door. I'm going to be there for you. Um, I do prefer a church experience that is in person because I think that I've learned over the last however many months, it's really like hard to worship in my living room. And there are elements of it that just like, there's something about being in person with other people and being in a room with other people. Um, But at the same time, I think because we're in this world right now where we don't have that luxury of being in person, that's not an invitation to just shut off completely, you know? Right. Like it's not an invitation to just, never text my friends and check in on them. Or, you know, I like to send like Venmos to people for coffee, you know, as a way to say like, Hey, I see you. And like, we can't have an in-person coffee date right now, but like, you know, and I I try to do the same thing for my audience. Like if I can show up in real life for them, I'm going to do that. I send voice memos all the time in DMS. Um, there was a time in my single, single life where I would show up at people's baby showers and like wedding showers and like, Every city I was speaking in, I would put out an invitation to meet me at a diner and come get pancakes with me. And to this day, those are still some of the sweetest memories that I have of getting to actually meet my readers and talk to them and have face-to-face conversation because there's something there when you can get somebody face-to-face and it's unfiltered and it's unedited. And if anything, you show up in all these places just to have those conversations. You know, it's interesting. That is what I am missing most from the road. It's not the travel. It's not the airports. It's uh, yeah. meeting listeners. It's meeting leaders. Those one-on-one connections, even a a stolen lunch where you kind of sneak off on a break and have a conversation on the lawn yep. or that kind of thing. But here's a dilemma, right? The number of people that you reach online is what ten x, a hundred x, a thousand x. What you, what yeah. you meet in real life? It's that strange dilemma. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. How much is loneliness and isolation a factor for your generation? Not that you're speaking exclusively for your generation, but that's kind of how your story started out, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's a huge factor. I mean, I see it in my inbox all day, every day. Um, People are lonely and they're disconnected. And um, they... And and I I see the correlation. I can't deny that I think a lot of it is because of the uprise of social media and because of like the standards that my generation has set for what like success looks like, you know, like it's easy for me to talk about it from the spot of a verified checkmark or whatever. But like at the same time, it's like, no, this can't be it. Like this won't fill you. Like it, it won't. I, I I often think that God allowed me to do this TED talk and have this crazy amount of success at such a young age, only to show me it's not here. Try to go to tell. Try and go tell the others that this isn't it. Because <laughs> for me, this work means nothing if I am not investing in my craft, if I'm not actually doing something. And for me, my craft is writing. And I think that's why I show up every day is because I love nothing more than those writing hours. Those are sacred to me and they're unplugged and the world is never going to see them. But I think 
my generation has a problem with doing things behind the scenes. Like that everything is for public recognition. Everything is like not to play into stereotypes, but for likes or growth or, or platform or image or Mm -hmm. wow. For commentary. And, and it's like, that terrifies me because I just want to say, no, no, no. Like the magic is in cooking the dinner unplugged, pulling out a cookbook. The magic is in writing the book, not actually publishing the book and putting it out there in the world. Cause like right now I'm in a, um, like, doing a bunch of podcast interviews. And I think I just want to go back in my writing hole. That's what I love. Like, I love that creation process. And I think that if more people showed up to try to figure out what is it that you love to create, what is the life that you want to build in real life apart from the screen, I think they would feel a lot more significance. I think there would be less isolation and loneliness because it, it seeps into all of these conversations with young people. Like I remember I was sitting one day like before a speaking engagement and they were all on their phones talking about their ratios. And I was like, what is a ratio? And a ratio apparently is um, the number of people that are following you compared to the number of people that you are following. And so your ratio is supposed to be significantly smaller then, or like the people you're following has to be a really small number in order to make like you look really important and that way or you're something a big deal, like that. Right. Yes. And I literally like stopped the conversation and was like, we, we're not actually talking about this right now. Like, are we really talking about this with like human lives? Like, are you literally just saying, I've just got to go unfollow some people so that I look better? Because I think that's what we're missing all of us right now is that like every single person that follows you is a human being who has insecurities, worries, fears, doubts, and we treat them like they're a number at the end of the day. And we wonder why we feel so lonely and isolated and depressed. Like, I, I don't know. I just get, fired I, up I, I agree with you. <laughs> that is resonating very deeply One of the questions I wanted to ask you, though, and this is probably a case of feeding the monster or at least trying to play with the monster, is you built a very successful platform in your 20s and into your very young 30s. What have been some of the keys to that for you? Because you get to do what you are passionate about, which a lot of people listening would be like, I would love to be able to do that, whether it's writing or or whatever they're doing. So what have been some, some keys to that for you? I think I've tried over the years to always make the platform that I have be about the person on the other side of it. Like I do not need it or want it to be about me. Um, And so I try to show up every day and think, what does somebody else need to hear? What do they need Mm -hmm. to know? I, I live by this life of like serving. If I have an audience, I want to serve them. Like I don't need them to stroke my ego. I don't need them to tell me I'm wonderful. I'd rather them not because I don't get my significance from the internet. I used to for sure. When I was first starting out, like all of this was like, wow, this is amazing. Like people like me. And I felt like kind of like a unicorn within my community, but I fell off that pedestal real fast and real quick. And I realized like, no, 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 no. Like I need to fuel myself. I need to know where my real worth comes from. And then I need to create out of that place. And so 
for me, it's like I do a lot of really focused work that is like unplugged and very much about the creation process. Because if I say I want to be a writer at the end of the day, then I better be writing more than I'm doing anything else. I better be writing a lot more than I'm on social media. I better be writing a lot more than I'm um, learning whatever new marketing tool is out there. Um, And it's crazy because I find this a lot in especially like the Christian author speaker world. Mm. Um, If I can just go there. You can go there. We say we want these platforms because we want to preach or we want to write. And yet this is like this one space where you can say these things and yet never sit your butt in the chair and create anything at all. If you want to be Michael Phelps, you better get in the pool every single day. And yet in this industry, it's like, I want to preach, but I don't open my Bible. Like, Mm. I would say, if you want to preach, get your Bible right now and like go log some hours right over there. Because like, that's the most dangerous thing is if I'm getting up on stage and I'm just giving people more of myself. The world doesn't need that right now in this space. It is bizarre because you kind of become the brand. Right. And what do you do all day? It's like, well, I'm just me and people watch me. And it's like, well, where's the substance? How do you said early on you, you kind of got caught up in the whole follower and growth thing. And then you kind of snapped back to reality or or fell out of love with that. How did that happen? Um, I fell into a very deep, dark depression Mm. (laughs) and, um, I nearly lost my life to it. Um, I was, hospitalized. Um, I never had a plan for how I would take my life, but I, I understood, I got it. I knew why people just wanted the pain to stop. And, um, that to me was such a wake up call because right before it happened, um, before there was like a switch that went off in my brain and I went from like high functioning to like not even able to perform the most basic of tasks. Um, I remember having this moment where I could see the warning signs, but I just blew right past them. And one of them was I was speaking at a conference in Indianapolis and there were 3000, I think, um, like Sigma Tau Delta sorority sisters in the room. And I remember like I spoke and they all immediately like stood to their feet and gave me a standing ovation. And I got back to my hotel room And I remember having this really lonely moment of thinking, who do I tell? Like, Mm. who do I even have in my life to tell about this? Because I'm not really, it wasn't that I wasn't invested in people's lives, but like, I just, it felt very empty. It was a really cool experience, but I didn't have anything like real to come back to. So like, that was the only experience that I could get value from. Um, And shortly after that, Everything was like all systems down and um, I was living in Atlanta, but I hadn't planted any roots in Atlanta. And so I had to fly back to Connecticut where I was from because that's where people actually knew me. They knew me before any of this success had happened. And those are the people that showed up and they walked with me and they got me through this thing. But that was where God just used that time to show me like, hey, this little, like this brand, this platform, like all of it could be gone tomorrow, but also like, I never, like, I didn't want to share a single one of those experiences with people on the screen because like, 
because they weren't going to show up for me at 2 a.m. Those were not the people that were holding me through the night and were taking me to doctor's appointments. And so when I had to rebuild my life, I had to rebuild it on something other than this flimsy platform, you know, and that's where I that's where I started a workout group with my girlfriends in the neighborhood. That's where I learned how to cook. I followed through with a whole 30. I decided to go on real dates. I built a life brick by brick based on real life experiences. And I was surprised to find that that was so much more filling than anything that was happening online. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I talk about with young leaders and we danced on it briefly is I get the question a lot as a guy in my fifties, you know, people ask me, how do I build a platform? What were you doing to build a platform when you were in your twenties or thirties? And I'm like, I didn't even know what that word meant. Like maybe, yeah. you know, it's yeah. something you built out of wood for someone to stand on. Like, I, I don't really know. And I said, I, I was just doing the work. Like I was, I was yeah. trying to finish school. I was trying to start a church, plant a church, you know, reach people that's what I was doing. I was being a husband and a dad and not always doing a great job. And then that's just kind of mm. emerged out of that. What would you say a lot of leaders, that, and, and I want to hear it from your perspective at your stage of life, a lot of people seem to feel like they need a platform right now. Like that is a, mm. a price of admission. Um, any advice on that? Well, especially being in like the book publishing space where it's like, that is the price of admission. It's like having some sort of platform. Mm -hmm. um, and I would probably tell you like, hey, like you can still, you can build a platform in a way that doesn't feel icky or weird or like you're like cold calling people in their DMs. I would, you know, I'd figure out what it is that you need to share with the world. What are your messages? How can you serve the people? Because when you gain followers, like, how are you going to turn it back on them? Like any time that I'm showing up online, like I'm trying to think, what do my readers need? What are the topics that they're into? And, and you don't need 5,000 people in order to start doing that, in order to start asking your audience, what do you want to see? What do you need? You know, like yeah. I actually have um, on my email list, uh, when they sign up for, I, I have this thing called the Monday Club. And yeah. that's because like I was tired of demonizing Mondays and I wanted to empower people for the week ahead. And when they sign up, I ask them if they'll fill out a quick survey. And it's a reader survey where they can say, this is the content I need right now. Like, this is the question I'm trying to answer in my own life. This is where I'm at in life. And like, I'm able to use that in order to figure out like, what are the things that I should be writing that are going to encourage somebody? And so it's like, if you've got five people following you, I would tell you start right there and engage with those people. And like, even though it's happening on a screen, like don't take the humanity out of the process, you know? Like, it's like, I'm having conversations every day with people in my DMs and in my inbox. And like, I don't get to reach all the people, but like, if I've got you in front of me, like best believe I'm not going to act like I'm too important to engage with you because mm. to me, I see that a lot in the platforms. And, and I, I see a lot of people that are like, quote unquote, like Christians that are like, you meet them in real life and they don't even give you the time of day. They don't want to have a conversation with you. And that, that scares me, you know? And so I think like, I don't know, I've always like, 
gone by like lessons that my mom has taught me of like, you always show up and you try to be more interested than you are interesting. Mm. And that will get you really far if you can just flip it on to other people, especially if you're an introvert, it works really well because then it's like, I don't, I don't have to worry about the attention being on me. I can ask them questions about their life. Um, but yeah, I think if you keep it through the posture of like serving people, like you're going to get so much more fulfillment out of that. And then, like I've said over and over again, like invest in that behind the scenes work. And like, I am somebody who believes that like books should be written because we still have a great need for really great words. Um, and so if you have a very small platform, just get dedicated with it. And like, um, you don't need to know all the marketing schemes. That's not what I'm telling you to do. But like little by little, just invest in that space, invest in growing and learning and developing and like making that a space, like whether that's a blog space or an Instagram or a podcast where like people come and they actually get something from it. They actually yeah. walk away feeling better or changed because of it. Because if it's all about you at the end of the day, like it's exhausting for you. And eventually people will just say, I don't like this anymore. And they'll, you know. That's such sound advice. I hope people are taking notes. And uh, I think you bring a lot of wisdom uh, to that conversation, Hannah. Um, in your book, um, you... Um, you give some advice that's interesting. You started off by saying our world is consumed with perfection. Um, I'd love you to unpack that a little bit. How are we consumed with perfection? And then you make a case for consistency. Can you talk about that? Gosh, I'm like a discipline junkie. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very much like an advocate for like show up and then show up again and then keep showing up. Um, yeah. But I think honestly, that's just the, the culture that we've been handed is a culture of perfection. And even though we say we want the messy and the unedited and the unfiltered, we actually still do want perfection. Um, and like, that's something that I think you can like untrain yourself from. Like, I think that like, I mean, I look at my blog and I think, well, that blog is nowhere near perfect because to me that's practice. Like I show up mm -hmm. on that blog to practice my craft every single week. And so if we can just look at like creating things as much as we can, not for the need for it to be perfect, but the need for it to get the message across, whatever the message is, like, I think we'd put a lot more things out there that could actually help the world. Um, but when it comes to like consistency, like when I went through that depression, like that's what I came out on the other side needing to do. Like I needed to become consistent. I needed to be the person that... Um, didn't just show up once, but kept coming back. And that looks, that looks different in a lot of areas of my life, but it's the same thing. Like we were talking about of like, okay, like if I want to be a person who is healthy and feels fit, I can't go to the gym once and expect overnight results. Like, um, if I have like a new year's resolution, like that's going to require some consistency on my part, like um, like not just showing up once, but showing up again and again and again. And I think a lot of times people stop showing up because they're not seeing results. Yes. They might not know how close to the breakthrough they actually are, um, but everything in my life operates off of consistency. And I want, I want that in my work, but I also want that with my people. I want to be known as someone 
who was consistent, if not anything else. And I, I don't think I'm perfect at that. I'm always feeling like I'm getting another crash course in it. It's almost like falling in love with the process of writing rather than just the results of writing. The process of posting rather than the results of posting. Because I don't know that you find this or not. I find it very difficult to to predict success. What takes off, what doesn't take off. Yep. The things you write and you're like, this is going to be amazing. And then it's like crickets, right? Yep. Um, And and I guess I, I must be in a healthy space right now because like I rarely even go back to see how a post did. Um, But I do try to be consistent with setting a 15 minute timer and going through comments and responding to comments. Even if it's a week later or two weeks later, I am still trying to get back to people because I think that they deserve that response. Mm. We do our best too. It's hard. It's hard to keep up sometimes. Yeah, it really is. What is slow magic? That is what we've been talking about. Mm. It is that idea of like, you know, not like unplugging the phone and um, just investing in your craft. Like I want to get to the end of my life and be a really great writer. That means I have to write a lot of words. And so um, it's exactly what it is. It's like, Mm. it's so hard to describe. No, I love it. I love it. I love that that phrase. I didn't know whether there's anything else on that, but I, I found that really Helpful. Let's talk about plateaus because we all hit plateaus and you got a whole section in your book about plateaus. What do you recommend if a leader finds him or herself there? I think that a plateau is like not an invitation to give up. And I think a lot of times like that's what we use it as. And so if you are experiencing a plateau, I think you have to be willing to backtrack a little and maybe look at something from a different angle. You know, I, I went through a plateau with more love letters several years ago where I really fell out of the work that I fell out of love with the work that I was doing. And I felt like because the magic wasn't there, like if I just ignore this thing, then it's going to go away. Well, that didn't help anything at all. And so in reality, I had to recommit myself and like recommission myself to the work of right here, to the daily tasks, to going into the weeds and look at like, okay, what's not working? What could we change? What could we fine tune? And through that, I learned that it's not that I had fallen out of love because I had never fallen in love to begin with. I had stepped into it. And so if there's a plateau, I would still say you have to keep taking those intentional steps. And like, for me, like I keep a notebook where I just kind of like, log everything that I do and everything that needs to be done. And and I do it all analog just because I think there's power in writing things down. Um, But I'm able to go back and see evidence of times where I felt like things weren't moving. And instead of stopping, I just said, okay, how can we go in and fine tune this process? You know, Um, especially because I think like as leaders, like our our years ebb and flow, right? Like, so like there might be a really busy time and then there might be a time where you feel like I don't have a lot going on at all. And that's not like um, an invitation to shut off or to not do anything, but to maybe go back and look at the systems that you've built and fine tune those because when another surge happens, as it probably will, you're going to wish that you had fine tuned those systems so that like the machine could run in a sense, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because again, and I wonder if that's somehow tied to the results versus the process, right? Like, like you're right. It's a long obedience in the same direction. 
Eugene yeah, Peterson, like, Nietzsche. Yeah. We're, we're doing an Advent series right now. And I wrote the whole series last year. And now it's like releasing, but it's still been a process of like going back and saying, okay, like what worked last year? What didn't work last year? What could we fine tune? What could we rewrite? And it's like, every time you're putting something out there, making it new and making it like, um, I don't know, like approaching everything with excellence, I think is incredibly important. And I try to like leave that as the foundation for the things that I create is that it's like, I'm not just going to throw something together. I want it to be excellent from start to finish. And so how do we show up to our crafts with excellence? I want to uh, ask you this one more question. So you are connected to a lot of young leaders. When you think about yeah. the next few years, what do you think some of the greatest needs are among young leaders that a lot of us are trying to help, a lot of us are trying to reach? What would you say, hey, guys, pay attention to this? Such a good question. I mean, I feel like there's still, and I could be wrong about this, but I think about it from my own perspective of like what I need is like, I think people are craving substance, like real substance, not easy clickable things. Not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with TikTok because it's definitely having a moment, but like at the end of the day, like people still crave substance and people who are the real deal. And so I think one, it's, committing yourself to actually being the real deal, to walk your walk before you ever talk about it. Um, because we see this a lot, especially like in this world of Christian leaders, is that it's like they're really great at preaching, but then like their life behind the scenes like just doesn't match up. And so it's like be committed to the walk before you decide you're going to get out there and talk about it. What goes through your mind when you see a role model or a leader that you admire fall? Like what, what happens or when you find out that, you know, cause you've been a lot of backstages too, that it's like, yeah. oh, wow, there's a huge gap between what happens when the mic's on and what happens when the mic's off. Like what is, what does that do to you? I mean, it makes me sad. Um, mm. Like I know people are human and I know that like you can't necessarily know all the steps a person took or the experiences that they had to get to this place of like, maybe like, shutting down. We don't know a person's backstory. Um, but I think too, to me, it's just fuel of like, somebody might encounter me in the same arena one day. And so I, I want to try to be as real as I can be. And I don't know, like it does, it, it makes you sad though, because I think like, especially within this industry, this is an industry where you would hope that people were being genuine and, and, you know, living out the principles that they're giving everybody. Um, and so I can't, I'm not called to like judge anybody, but at the end of the day, like, I know I'm going to keep going back to God to say, okay, like, let's make this real because if it's not real behind the scenes, then I have no business even having a platform. Like, I don't mm. want to give somebody something that I'm not doing myself. And like, you know, I think that like, this is like a small, silly example, but like, I remember like I, for the longest time, wanted, um, I, I got these like vitamins in the mail. They're like these little packs of vitamins that you take. And we all know the benefits of vitamins, right? Like yeah. doctors are always like, you should take vitamins. The reality is vitamins, like 
it takes 30 to 45 days for you to actually even feel the effects of these vitamins. But like these vitamins, like this company, like they just did everything right. They prepackaged the vitamins. Your name was on the vitamin pack. It was really great branding. And I was like an evangelist for these vitamins. And what ended up happening though, is that I missed a day and then I missed another day and then I missed a week. And then I stopped taking these vitamins all together. And like they piled up in my kitchen cabinet. I remember my husband would be like, you want to start taking vitamins today? Like, you know, you have all these vitamins, but it was like, I had been telling people about these amazing vitamins and I wasn't even taking them myself. And that's like such a small example, but like the crazy thing is that we do this on a much bigger scale, mm-hmm. right? Like we're preaching all these things and we're not actually living it out. And so like, I think that's on every individual to say, okay, like I'm going to make sure that like my walk is real, that I'm not just talking a big talk, but like I'm showing up consistently to do these things that I say change things for other people. Wow. Hannah, this has been uh, rich and riveting. Anything else you want to share? I don't know. I mean, you've asked really great questions and I, yeah, I've gotten pretty passionate. Well, tell us about the book, obviously, wherever books are sold and then where people can find you. Yeah. So you, the book is called Fighting Forward um, and it is sold, yeah, wherever books are, shop local, support indie. Um, And then I'm over at hannahbrencher.com. I am showing up there, writing consistently, hoping to encourage people. Um, So yeah, hannahbrencher.com. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. See why I love connecting with young leaders. That was a really powerful conversation. You can get show notes, including some top insights, transcripts, uh, links to everything we talked about in this episode and more for free by going to kerryneuhoff.com forward slash episode 394. Well, I'm really excited. If you're not a subscriber yet, maybe this will tip the scales in your favor because my next guest, bucket list territory, Seth Godin. If you don't know who Seth is, just type Seth into Google. Yep, he's that well known. Uh, Probably the most influential marketer in the world alive today. And uh, well, we have a really fascinating conversation. Uh, Here's an excerpt. Our fear is nothing compared to the boredom of a thousand people. And the fear you might feel about public speaking is a symptom that you're onto something. And you can't make it go away, but you can dance with it. But your obligation is if a thousand people or a hundred people, even 10 people are giving you an irretrievable hour of their life, your obligation, whether you got paid to speak or not, is huge. And if you can't handle it, don't show up to speak. And if you can, view it as an obligation, a gift, an honor. Don't apologize for it. Be here in this moment for us because that's why we came. And I, I view that engagement as precious. And I am stunned at how many people uh, demonstrate their fear by denigrating the craft. That's next time on the podcast. Uh, man, I'll tell you, I'm very excited for that. So uh, we've also got, who have we got? We've got Cal Newport, uh, Digital Minimalism, Deep Work. He's got a new book coming out. I love Cal's work. Very excited for him. Uh, talk about change with Harvard's John Cotter, the world expert on change. Craig Groeschel, Chick-fil-A's David Salyers, Christine Knuckles. Uh, who else have we got coming up? We've also got 
Adam Grant and a whole lot more. Annie F. Downs, so excited for this, guys. And you can get all that by subscribing and then you'll never miss an episode. And of course, that's free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. I use the Overcast app. Wherever you listen, we just love to connect with you. So uh, now it's time for what I'm thinking about. This is brought to you by Glue Connect. Head on over to glueconnect.church forward slash carry and learn how your church can reach more people in your city. Get free access to a course I built just for them by signing up when it comes online for your city. And you can go to glueconnect.church forward slash carry and get Dwell, an audio Bible app today by going to dwellapp.io forward slash carry, where they will give you 20% off an annual or lifetime subscription. So let's talk about talks. Okay, there's a whole like industry around TED Talks and the whole deal. Uh, But one of the things I learned early on, and this is not the TED methodology, but it is a methodology I had to learn because I was a manuscript person. So uh, 30 years ago when I started communicating, I would bring like a fully typed manuscript in. And I'm not criticizing manuscript people, but I found early on, and this was true in my year in law when I was in court every day, if you're reading from your notes, it really, it, first of all, breaks down the bond between you and the audience. Secondly, you sound a little bit less natural. Like, can you tell I'm not using notes right now? I'm just kind of talking to you. But if I was reading something to you, it would sound very different. And uh, third, you really can't read the audience when you're reading directly from a manuscript. So it took me years to figure this out, but I learned eventually to get note-free. And the single best piece of advice I got from Princeton's Tom Long, I was driving him to the airport one day when I was a young leader. And I said, okay, you're an amazing communicator. Like what, what, um, (laughs) what's your secret? And he said, don't memorize your talk, understand it. I'm like, yes. And I have, I have hung onto that for like three decades now because it's so good. And how do you do that? How do you memorize, like don't memorize your talk, but understand it. So Here's how I start. I want to give you a few tips. Number one, build your talk around a single point. Um, It is really hard to remember complexity, right? If you got, well, I've got this and then I got that and then I got this. No, what is the single point of your talk? Uh, So uh, here's here's an example, like a whole talk, a whole 40-minute talk, one-hour talk, 20-minute talk, 10-minute talk could come down to a single line like this. Your boldest moments are your best moments. Or moral compromise compromises you. Or If you don't take the Sabbath, the Sabbath will take you. Or one of my favorites, I wrote this years ago, you can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both. See, those are just simple bottom lines, a single point. You build your whole talk around it and then you know, okay, where we're, when we start, we're heading toward, you can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both. Uh, That's where I need to end. And the whole talk, that is what the talk is about. And if if you can't, here's a nice little test. When people ask you, what are you talking about? If you have to give like a three minute answer, you don't know what you're talking about. You should be able to say it in a sentence or two. Um, So pick a single point for your talk. You can remember one, you can't remember eight. Number two, understand the talk structural pieces. Normally what happens in a talk, long or short, is you kind of have an introduction, then you have the teaching, the body, like, you know, you can make excuses or you can make progress, but you can't make both or scripture if you're preaching. Then you probably have an application point. So what does this mean? And then you've got a conclusion. And the conclusion is uh, how you're going to land the plane. And I've given a lot of talks where it was a crash landing. It's like, oh, nice flight. And then, ah, how are we going to finish this? You know, you see the timer counting down or whatever. And so just think about it that way. How am I going to begin? What am I going to open with? Okay, what's the main point here? How are we going to apply it? How are we going to conclude? That's it. If you can carry that, then you pretty much can give the talk without using notes. 
Um, there's a lot more detail over on my website. We'll link to this article. It's called, uh, actually, if you just Google uh, how to deliver a talk without using notes, it's one of the top finds on the internet. Also, I would review it, review it, review it, review it, review it. So if you're writing right before you deliver a message, it doesn't really embed in your memory. Um, so try to start early. And what will happen is as you play with that bottom line, that single sentence idea, as you build out your introduction, as you think about your application points, as you think, okay, here's where I'm going to land this thing, you will begin to internalize the message. So um, I will often work months in advance on talks. Uh, sometimes I work days in advance if you're on a much tighter timeline. But writing, you know, the morning of or, or on the airplane on the way to the event, it's going to be a lot harder. But if you start a little bit earlier, and I just keep a lot of ideas for talks and and writing in uh, Evernote. And then it's like, oh yeah, I remember that thing. And see, then it's you start to internalize it, you understand it, you own it. And then finally, you deliver it. Just get up there and speak from your heart. Now, I want to give you a pro tip. I think I learned this from Andy Stanley. I think he's got to be like the most quoted person on this podcast 400 episodes in. But he's, he just told me once, he said, you know, like if you forget a piece of your talk, nobody knows that you forgot that. And you've seen so many speakers, and I've done this too, right? Where it's like, ah, oh, what was I going to say? What was I going to say? Nobody knows you're going to say anything. So just skip it. And if you're done early, listen, nobody ever complained about you being done early, right? They complain if you go too long, but that's how you deliver a talk without using notes. So uh, get a single point, kind of base it all out on that single point, and you will work sometimes for a long time to get that sing single point. Because if you're not clear, your audience never will be. So get that clarity. If you don't take the Sabbath, Sabbath will take you. You can make excuses. You can make progress. You can't make both. Understand the structure. What's the intro, the main point, the application, the conclusion. And then um, start early, review it, and deliver it. So hope that helps. Uh, I got a lot more of this stuff. And we send a daily email to about 80,000 leaders over at kerryneuhoff.com. If you go to kerryneuhoff.com forward slash email, you can sign up for that. It's short. Uh, we provide some nuggets of what I hope is leadership goodness to you every single day, pretty much. And uh, so grateful for you. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.